The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. There we read as we continue through the letter to the Hebrews. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, as many of you know, we have been working through Hebrews, as I said, and especially Hebrews 11, these Uh, past few Sundays, working through Hebrews 11, just a few verses at a time. In fact, there were uh, Sundays in Hebrews 11 where the sermon text was uh, only one or two verses long because we took time to look with some detail at each of the old covenant people that the author of Hebrews uh, mentions in this chapter. And so, you you may have wondered as I read the sermon text just now, I wondered, uh, what's the rush? Uh, Why are we now considering such a big chunk of Hebrews this morning? It's almost like we went from a steady pace to uh, a sprint. And I want you to know this morning that it's not me that's rushing, but it's the author as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that you noticed it in the reading because Even the way he begins verse 32 with the question, and what more shall I say? Or we might phrase it, you know, how much more do I need to say? He's referring to the fact that it would take too long and perhaps require too much space for him to go into detail about all the old covenant saints who lived by faith. All the old covenant saints who lived by faith, trusting in God's promise to send a Redeemer to save his people from their sins. You know that he began chapter 11 uh, speaking in some detail about Noah, and Abraham, and Moses. But now he says basically, you know, I think that, that you get the picture. I, I don't need to continue with the details because you can see what I'm getting at. You can see where I'm going with this that all of the Old Covenant saints from Abel to Enoch 
to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, and on down the line, all of them believed the same thing. They were looking forward to Christ. They were looking forward to the promised one whom God would send to save his people from their sins, whom God would send to save us from our sins. And this was, you know, this was an important thing for the first century audience of this letter, letter of Hebrews, was an important thing for them to understand. Because as we know, as we've uh, mentioned often, they were tempted to leave Christ and to return to Judaism. They were tempted to return to the old covenant way of faith and worship. We know that most of them had been born and raised in Jewish families, and so they grew up knowing Judaism. They grew up going to the temple for worship, going to the synagogue. They grew up amidst that Jewish community that they were so familiar with. But we know that at some point they heard the gospel and by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, they trusted in Christ. They professed faith in him. And while that brought them a spiritual joy and peace, We know that it also created a whole new set of problems. As a result of their newfound faith in Christ, most of them were rejected by their Jewish families, their Jewish communities. They lost their jobs. Their reputations suffered. They lost their property. And instead of going to the temple for worship and to the synagogue as they regularly did, instead of going to the temple and seeing those wonderful sights and those glorious displays of worship that they were so used to, uh, they now instead met to worship with other Christians in people's small homes, perhaps in caves where they could find some kind of safety from the authorities. They could find some cover. Everything had changed. And we know that their temptation, as a result of this newfound suffering, The temptation was to return to Judaism, to return to what was familiar, to what was comfortable. The writer of Hebrews warns them that to leave Christ is to leave the very one that all of the old covenant saints were looking forward to. It's to leave the one whom all of the old covenant church trusted in. And as we'll see in chapter 12 at the beginning uh, next week, Uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to refer to uh, the race of faith. He's going to refer to the fact that we as Christians are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you think about the image of a race, um, even though you you might have never run in a marathon or might have never run in in a competitive race, you understand the idea behind a race is that everyone should be going in the same direction. And when he speaks here about the Christian race of faith, he's speaking about Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Moses and the fact that they were all running in the same direction. They were all looking to Jesus. And so imagine trying to run in a race going the opposite way of all of the runners. You can imagine even... You know, Costco, when you walk in, there's a, there's a pattern that you have to keep to. Right? You walk the store in a certain way, 
And sometimes if I'm at checkout and I forget, realize that I've forgotten something, I have to go against the traffic, and it's no fun going against the traffic, right? It's the same in a race. It's the same, especially in the race of faith. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, if you go back, you're actually running against the flow of traffic. You're running against Enoch and Moses and Abraham and Elijah and all those who went before you, who trusted in Christ, who were looking to him. If you turn your back to Christ, you're actually uh, going against and rejecting the one that all of the old covenant saints longed for. And so in verses 32 through 35 of Hebrews 11, the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues his listing of those who lived by faith in the Old Covenant. And he's now picking up at the time of the judges, when, uh, and then he'll go through the time of the monarchy in Israel and the prophets. And I want us to notice that this first group of believers that he mentions in verses 32 through 35 first group of believers is characterized by a victory, characterized by conquest, by miracles, and great escapes. You know, some children uh, today, and perhaps even some in our church, have uh, superhero posters, Marvel superheroes, DC Comics superheroes hanging up in their rooms. Right? So if we think about the children in Old Testament in Israel, if the technology had been present at the time, they would also have had posters up in their room, but not of DC Comics and Marvel superheroes, but of superheroes that we see in this list, these characters that overcame great obstacles by faith, that did great things, miraculous things by the power of God. They were, in a sense, winners in the race of faith, according to uh, all those who uh, saw them. As we see first on this list, verses 32 through 35, first on this list is Gideon, whom we read about this morning in Judges chapter 6. We read about how God called Gideon to lead his people in battle against the Midianites. And uh, the Midianites, they were a, a Canaanite tribe that were the enemies of Israel. They, as we read, often raided the Israelites stealing their food and their livestock. The Midianites were basically uh, marauders. And so we see in Genesis 6 how God raised up Gideon to lead Israel in battle against the Midianites. And it's not because Gideon himself was a great man. God promised to make him great in the same way that he promised Abraham and Moses the same thing. And even in the call of Gideon, I don't know if you noticed it, there's a little bit of irony because when God called Gideon to lead Israel in battle, where was Gideon? Well, he was hiding in a wine press. It was basically a hole carved in a rock. He was hiding from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Gideon, the first thing he said is, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Here's this mighty man of valor hiding away. Gideon's question might have been, are you sure that I'm that mighty man of valor that uh, you want to be addressing? But as we see in Hebrews 11:34, Gideon was made strong out of weakness by the Lord. Gideon 
was not a perfect man. He was not sinless, just like all of those listed in Hebrews 11. But he was a man of faith who trusted in God's promise to send a redeemer to save his people from their sins. And his life of conquest and of victory and of courage demonstrated his faith. It was evidence of his faith in the Lord. And then as we continue in Hebrews 11, we see that the next three names are also from the book of Judges. There in verse 32, he lists Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. You know that Barak, along with Deborah the prophetess, was used by God to deliver God's people from the Canaanite army, an army that was allied against God and his people. And we are all so familiar with Samson, are we not? Samson, who was used by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And even though we know that Samson's life was characterized by inconsistency and by sin and rash behavior, he believed the Lord. He trusted in God by faith. And he trusted in God to the very end. And we read of Jephthah. Jephthah, whom we know, delivered God's people from the Ammonites. Jephthah, who was also a judge. See, these men's lives were characterized by victory, by conquest, and by military might. And the same is true, if we think about it, of the next two names on the list, David and Samuel. We are familiar with David as well, are we not? David was a man of faith, and actually his life takes up a large portion of our Bibles. First and Second Samuel record his defeating of Goliath, who blasphemed against God. They record how David trusted the Lord even as a young man, even as he faced persecution from Saul. And they record how he was ultimately, according to God's providence, anointed by Samuel and established as the king of Israel. And it was to David we know that God revealed that the Messiah would come from his family line, revealing to David that not only would the Messiah be a man, but he would also be a king who would rule over his people. And next, we see the author of Hebrews mentions the prophets, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Some of the prophets we know wrote books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but there were other prophets who did not uh, write books uh, that we have in our canon, but who prophesied with great boldness, despite danger to their lives, who obeyed the call of God, men like Elijah and Elisha. All of these people trusted in God's promise of redemption. See, they lived by faith, and that's the key that's emphasized here in verse 33. That's the key. It says, who through faith. It wasn't just that they had powerful personalities. It's not just that they were men and women with a lot of ambition or a desire for power or riches or or ease. No, it was because of their faith that they conquered, that they endured, that they were victorious. As we see in verse 33, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. Who do you think of in that scenario? Daniel in 
the lion's den. Verse 34, they quenched the power of fire. Who comes to mind? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know we're protected amidst, amidst the flames of the fiery furnace by that fourth figure who appeared in the flames with them, that figure who was Christ himself. These people of faith, we see in verse 34, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. And even women, it says, verse 35, received back their dead by resurrection. Here the writer of Hebrews singles out the faithfulness of women, key women in the Old Covenant. We think about the woman at Zarephath and the Shunammite woman, both of whom, by faith, received their dead sons back to life, pointing to the resurrection that is to come for all of God's people. See, all of these people, loved ones, all of these Old Covenant saints in verses 32 through 35, they lived lives characterized by heroic exploits of faith. They, in their lifetimes, witnessed miracles. They were victorious in battle. They experienced supernatural deliverances. They lived lives that evidenced persevering faith, faith that believed God would do what was seemingly impossible, what others said would never happen. These people believed. They lived by faith. They believed God would part the sea. They believed God would defeat mighty armies, that God would provide water in the desert. They had faith that feared God more than they feared the kings of this world. Like Moses, who went up to Pharaoh and spoke to him the word of the Lord, not fearing Pharaoh's power, but knowing that there was one who was mightier than Pharaoh. You know, if this was, if we consider these great people, these victorious people of faith, if this was all that we knew about God, we might think this morning that this is normal, that God always works in such glorious and miraculous ways in the lives of believers. But loved ones, as we see in the next few verses, a true faith doesn't always reveal itself in greatness and glory. You know, sometimes as we're perhaps reading our Bibles, we read about the miracles and the glorious victories, and we think, why aren't I experiencing the same things in my life? seems that this is the way God operates. Am I doing something wrong? The writer of Hebrews is emphasizing and underlining for us that true faith doesn't always or only reveal itself in greatness and glory, in what we might, some people might refer to as victorious Christian living and deliverances from death and illness and pain and loss. But, loved ones, true faith is often characterized by suffering, as we see. Faithful saints, true believers, often suffer. As we look at verses 35 through 38, we read that uh, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That even as they suffered, we see they believed in a resurrection. Why were they suffering? 
It was for their faith. It was for the sake of righteousness. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Mocking refers to uh, making fun of someone in a cruel way. Flogging means to beat severely with a whip. And God's people have and continue to face chains and imprisonment for the gospel, for the sake of Christ. We think of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph, who was locked in the dungeon for righteousness' sake. Why was he locked in the dungeon? Because he refused to give into the temptation of Potiphar's wife. He was arrested for the sake of righteousness. We think of the apostles who were chained and imprisoned. Why? Because they were scoundrels? No. Because they preached about Jesus. And we think of Christians today, our brothers and sisters throughout the world, who are jailed because of their profession of faith, who are even now, as we worship the Lord here freely this morning, they are in chains. We know that though their bodies are chained, their souls are free in Christ. And we look at these verses, continuing on in verse 37, that the examples of suffering grow in severity. We read that uh, they were stoned. This happened to Zechariah in Second Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 through 21. When the Lord raised him up to preach against the evils of the, the king at that time, and rather than obeying the word of the Lord, what did the people choose to do instead? They, choosed, they chose to kill the messenger. We read in 2 Corinthians 24, beginning at verse 20, Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. We continue on the list of their sufferings. They were sawn in two. Jewish legend held that this is what happened to the prophet Isaiah for his faithful preaching of the Lord, to the Lord. We read that they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. There was in this dark world that these believers shined as lights for Christ. They stood apart from the wickedness of the world. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Loved ones, the eyes of the world, in the eyes of sinners, you know, these people, we might say, were losers. And yet, in the eyes of the Lord... These were his faithful servant, whose lives were characterized by love for the Lord and for obedience to his will. In the eyes of the world, they were fools, but in the eyes of the Lord, they were his children, and they are his children. This is, this suffering that is described, this is 
the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is a life that is characterized by suffering and difficulty. You recall in The Pilgrim's Progress, the, the book, a Christian and his friends, as they are on that road to the celestial uh, city, Christian and his friends, they encounter one danger and one temptation and one difficulty after another. They just seem to keep coming at him. That is the journey of faith. That is the normal Christian life. Uh, John Newton in his hymn, Amazing Grace, reminds us that this life is filled with many dangers, toils, and snares. And we know that even the Puritans used to say that this life is filled with losses and crosses. This is what Jesus had to teach his disciples. We read in Mark chapter 8 that after Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus began to teach his disciples that rather than being the political ruler that they anticipated, that they hoped for, rather than being a king that would come and immediately establish his throne and his empire in Jerusalem and he would rule with an iron fist, the Gentiles of the world, rather than doing that, instead, Jesus said to them in Mark 8, verse 31, that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes And he would be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And we know in the Gospel of Mark that when Peter heard this, he didn't agree with Jesus' plan. In Peter's mind, again, the Messiah needed to set up a political empire in Jerusalem to rule and to reign. The disciples, they had a theology of glory and of prosperity and of easy believism at at the time. Peter himself didn't understand that Jesus' death would be for his good, for the good of the church, that his death would serve as payment for the penalty of our sins. And not only would the Messiah suffer and die, says Jesus to his disciples, but this pattern of suffering and death to self would also need to characterize all of his followers. We read in Mark, 8, verse 34. This is just three verses after Peter's great confession and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does it mean, brothers and sisters, for a follower of Christ to take up his cross, take up her cross? It means that we willingly and actively follow Christ and take up the suffering that comes from our obedience to him in this world. It means, again, that we willingly and actively follow Christ and take up the suffering that comes from our obedience to him in this world. We don't compromise to avoid suffering, but we follow after him and take whatever God has ordained for us, whatever sufferings come as a result. See, to take up your cross, to take up my cross, means that we've counted the cost. We've counted it. We, we know what's in store, what will result. It's like Moses. You know, Moses, who we saw in 
Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. Moses, who had to consider, would he follow after Christ or would he seek after and enjoy the treasures that Egypt had to offer? Moses had to make a choice. He sat down and he counted the cost. And we read, we read in Hebrews 11 that he chose Christ and forsook the treasures of Egypt. To take up your cross means you've counted the cost. You know what's at stake if you obey God rather than men. And you still willingly and actively obey God. See, a cross is a difficulty that comes into our lives because of our obedience to God in this world. And you know, what Jesus is emphasizing here, loved ones, is that self-denial and cross-bearing are not one-time acts. We don't do it once and then it's over. But they are a way of life for the true disciple. In fact, Luke in his gospel adds these words, adds, adds the word daily. Let him take up his cross, or let him daily take up his cross. And Matthew in his gospel includes these words, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We see the promise here, for those who cling to Christ, who cling to him by faith, they gain everything, though they might lose the treasures of this world, the temporary things that moth and rust destroy. Clinging to Christ means that we gain everything. We gain that eternal treasure that cannot be ruined. To cling to Christ means that we gain eternal life in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And see, loved ones, that's why the losers in the eyes of this world are really the eternal winners in the eyes of God. It's them who are made weak, who are made strong, even though they seem weak. It's those who are rejected by the world whom God accepts through Jesus Christ. So we see that all of the Old Testament saints found life, and they found it in Christ. And this is why the prosperity gospel that many of us have heard about, the prosperity gospel is so wicked. It's also known as the health and wealth gospel. At its root, what it claims is that God rewards increases in faith. The more faith I have, he rewards increases in faith with increases in health and wealth. There's that direct correlation. So the more faith you have, the more faith I have, the more wealth and health you and I should have. And see, it works the opposite, that if we don't have health and wealth, well, then it means that it's our fault, that we lack the faith that is necessary for such prosperity. Well, we see, loved ones, that in light of Scripture, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, because true faith is demonstrated not just in victories, but also in suffering. And those who cling to Christ, despite the tragedies that they experience in this life, the difficulties, they say, and we say with the Old Covenant saints, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Give me Christ or else I die. That is the saying of true faith. And lastly, we see in Hebrews 11 that 
we through faith are being made perfect and are made perfect uh, through Christ just as all those who look forward to him in the old covenant. We read in verses 39 through 40. And all these, all these meaning Enoch, Moses, all those listed and that we read about throughout the Old Testament, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What they had not received was not yet fulfilled in Christ. They were living in the time of promise. You and I, loved ones, live in the time of fulfillment. Those who lived during the old covenant, they were looking forward to Christ. They were looking forward to his coming. They saw him only dimly in types and shadows. You and I see him clearly as he has explained to us in the gospel. They lived in a time of promise, believing that he would come to save them from their sin. So what we see in these two key verses, what we see is that God doesn't have two plans for his people. It's not that God had one plan for those in the old covenant and another plan for those in the new covenant, as some dispensationalist Christians might argue. It was the same plan all along. It was the plan that was promised to Adam. It was the plan that was revealed more and more over centuries to all of those in the old covenant. More and more was revealed about the one who would come to save his people from their sins. And it was all fulfilled, loved ones, in the fullness of time when Christ came and accomplished salvation for his people. And so now, in Christ, we have been made perfect. We have been made complete. The question is, you know, how are you and I made perfect? I don't feel perfect. If you look, there's two verses over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We read there that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This word means also he is the finisher of our faith. What the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the one that was promised, the one that came in the fullness of time and died on the cross for the sins of his people, has accomplished their salvation. They have been perfected. You and I have been perfected in him. We cannot be more justified than we are at this very moment. We grow in Christ-likeness all of our lives, but our salvation has been completed. This is why the Lord Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So loved ones, let us have boldness as we enter into worship, as we go about our day thinking about whose we are and what we are. We are the Lord's. We have been saved by grace. It is truly finished. We are his. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithful men and women in the history of redemption who lived before us and who testified to Christ by their lives, by their sufferings, and even by their deaths. May we, we pray, uh, be counted among them as we also look to Christ in faith. 
Grant that the word preached this morning might bear fruit in our lives as your Holy Spirit waters the seed of it in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.